Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. As you look at that title there, I will tell you we are not in boundless uh, college class this morning, dying to get married. We are in Romans chapter 7, and you'll see the application has to do with Paul's illustration of marriage that he uses here to, to talk about this changed relationship that a believer has with the, with the law. Last time we introduced this chapter, today we're going to look at Paul's opening argument, which is all about a believer's relationship to, to the law. And the topic of law is very clear. In chapter 7, the word law actually occurs 18 times in this chapter. The word sin occurs 17 times in chapter 6, law 18 times in chapter 7, and spirit is mentioned 20 times in chapter 8, which gives you a general idea of the theme of each chapter, sin, law, and the spirit. But it's their overarching connection that actually helps you understand how they all fit together in, in Paul's argument in, in Romans. You need to understand how Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 all fit into this one letter as a unit, which Paul is writing Romans all together. We, we break it down verse by verse, sometimes even less than that, but we always need to keep it in, in context. And last time we saw the big picture, which is vital especially for Romans 7, before you dive into the details. And having done that, today we'll, we'll see how Paul, this master apologist, makes this compelling argument that the law no longer has jurisdiction over a believer. He, he, he first presents a funeral to us and then a glorious wedding to make his point. Paul says, with the coming of Christ... There has been a significant change for a believer relating to the law of God. And that change is because of our spiritual death to the law and then subsequent marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he says things like, we are not under law but under grace in Romans 6.15, meaning we're no longer under the law's dominion. We're under grace's dominion. And then in Romans 7.1, that we'll see today, he describes that change as something definitive. It's, it's a death. We have died to the law. So whatever Paul's talking about here, it's clear that there has been a historic change related to the Old Testament law for a New Testament believer. A New Testament believer is no longer under it. A New Testament believer has died to it. And then that will all set up the verse that you love, that I love, in Romans 8, 1, which says a New Testament believer is no longer condemned by it, which is wonderful news. Why are we no longer condemned by the law? Because we're no longer under the reign of the law, the dominion of the law, because we've died to, to the law. And that's wonderful news. Have you broken the Ten Commandments? I know you have. You lied and lusted and, and coveted, just like I have. You ever loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? No, not all the time. You ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Yes, you have. And the law condemns you. That law condemns you for that. But Paul says that condemnation has been removed for a Christian. 
And in chapter 7, he's going to explain how and what he means by being dead to, to the law's reigns. I mean, he's going to explain things like how does a Christian relate to their Old Testament? How does the uh, New Covenant follower of Jesus relate to law in general? I mean, are we lawless? If we're dead to it, does that mean we don't interact with it at all? Or, or maybe we're just under certain aspects of the law. Like, we're not under the sacrifices and the ceremonies, but, but we are under the moral part. The topic of the law and the believer has taken up gallons of ink in, in commentaries and books. And, and rightfully so, it's a vital topic. I mean, Paul puts it here in Romans and says, if you misunderstand the relationship between a believer and the law, then you can muddle the very gospel itself. Some would say a believer has nothing to do with the Old Testament whatsoever. I mean, you may have heard in the Old Testament the Jews were saved by the law, but now we're saved by grace in the New Testament. That's typically taught in, in hyper-dispensationalism. But Paul's already debunked that in Romans 4, where he shows the way of salvation unto God has always been by grace through faith. You remember Romans 4? where Paul points to the salvation of Abraham and David and says it's always been by grace and faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him for righteousness long before Moses ever came along. There are others who take that a step further and and say it's not just law in the old and grace in the new. They'll say it's no law at all. It's the free grace movement, which says you only need to focus on grace. Just look at the cross and focus on your justification and And just by doing that, you'll become holy. You'll you'll be sanctified by by thinking about about the cross. And they'll disregard holiness and the law completely. They say Jesus is Savior, but He's not your Lord. And you only need to remember the numerous sermons from Romans 6 to know that's ridiculous. I mean, Paul just spent an entire chapter telling you, slaves, you have a Lord. You have a new Lord. In fact, you were never free to begin with. You you were a slave of sin, and now you have a new master who is Christ. Others break the law into pieces, like the ceremonial part of the law and the moral part of the law, and they'll say a Christian is no longer under the ceremonies and the sacrifices, but they're under the moral part. Or as Calvin called it, there's the law's office, that's ended, and then it's rule of life. We're no longer under the official capacity of the Mosaic Covenant. It no longer reigns in this official capacity over you. But the law still governs your, your rule of, uh, of life. And while that, I think you can find some of that nuance in, in Scripture, and the Apostle Paul makes no distinction here about parts of the law. He doesn't even mention the ceremonies or the sacrifices or anything. He just says you're no longer under it. And you died to it as a unit So trying to make that division in Romans 7, at least, is going beyond the the text. In fact, Paul's going to make an explicit statement in in Romans 8 that says the law has no jurisdiction over a New Testament believer. And so if that's the case, I mean, what do I do with the law? I mean, do I now disregard it as a Christian? I mean, is it helpful in any way in my sanctification? I mean, what about holiness? In Romans 7... We'll answer all of those questions and, and more, but, but again, you need to see it as a whole before you, you get into these nuanced parts. I mean, the point of Romans 7 is, is not the difficulties, and there are many. You're going to see that right out of the gate. In the very first verse, you're going to have to make some decisions that will help you interpret the whole chapter. Romans 7, though, is part of a bigger argument that Paul's been making since chapter 5. I mean, 
chapter 6 and chapter 7, we said are like a giant parenthesis where Paul addresses misunderstandings about the, about the gospel. And last time we saw you can even read from the end of chapter 5, Romans 5, 21, and you can pick right back up in, in Romans 8, 1, and it makes perfect sense. The argument just, just flows. And the reason for chapter 6 and chapter 7 is because Paul knows he needs to answer some questions. He needs to address some arguments that people are making or questions that they ask so they don't stumble over it and miss the, miss the gospel. He wants them to understand what he's not saying. The two things people were saying against his message had to do with the extent of grace and the application of the law. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, okay, grace, but how extensive is grace? Paul says it's so extensive it's like a bottomless sea. And, and what about the law? Paul says it doesn't apply. What does that mean? That's exactly what he covers in Romans 6 and 7. Romans 6 is all about grace and its overpowering of sin. And Romans 7 is all about how grace triumphs in place of the law. And that sets us up for the work of the Spirit in chapter 8. Romans 7, Paul explains why the law doesn't give an answer to sin. Why it's always been for sanctifying purposes and the law's never been for justifying purposes. I mean, chapter 7 is not only proof that the law cannot solve the condition of sin, but it's also a thorough explanation of how adding the law, when God brought in the law through Moses, explained the law in detail, it actually made our condition worse. So Paul shows that those of you who want to reject grace and keep law, that can't solve your problem because you are the problem. I mean, not only that, because you're a sinner, adding something good like the law actually makes you worse. I mean, we are so bad, Paul will say in this chapter, that we'll take something good and holy like the law of God. When God adds that, it actually makes us worse. It doesn't make us better. He says, you think the solution to your problem is the law and that it makes you righteous. God says it's exactly the opposite. Now think about that. Think about hearing that, what that sounded like as a Jew or even a Gentile who understood the Mosaic law or, or watched Jews or had the law written on their hearts. You can imagine that would raise some questions. And if you can do that, you'll understand why Paul takes an entire chapter to explain this. We, we said Romans 7 teaches us three things. It teaches us why the law could not bear fruit toward God, could not help us bear fruit toward God. Also, it, it, it gives a detailed description of how sin responds, how sin in us responds to the law when we're confronted with, with, with the law. The Ten Commandments comes in. What do we do with it? We don't say, ah, oh, I want to obey it. We, we say, okay, it says 55. Um, when will the police officer pull me over? Ten miles over? Seven miles over? I mean, that, that, that's what we think about when we, when we think about the law. It's how sin responds in us. And then it describes the function of the law and the place of the law in in the life of a believer. Why was the law set aside and not permanent? Because alone it could not bear fruit for God. And it actually made us worse, not not better. And we also said that that there are three sections to Romans 7. We're going to look at the first part today, which we'll we'll begin in verses 1 through 6, where Paul defines our new relationship to the law. He uses this analogy of a wedding and a funeral. And then in verses 7 through 12, Paul defends the virtue of the law, and then the last part is 
this description of how that's worked out in, in real life. And Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 6, that we, we died with Christ, therefore we're dead to sin. And in Romans 7, he, he begins, he says that we've, we've died with Christ, therefore we're dead to the law. We're dead to sin, we're dead to the law. You see, the law was never God's primary plan. Grace was, because under the law you, you could not bear fruit which would lead people to think that Paul was saying the law was bad or that the problem was the law, but, but neither is, is true. So Paul begins with this explanation, and he does so with a very practical illustration that, that everyone can understand. I mean, look, if you would, at Romans 7, verse 1. He uses this common principle about the law's jurisdiction. He says, Do you not know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? The law only applies to living people. And then in verse 2, he illustrates that with, with, with an, an analogy. Verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. And then finally, he draws this definitive conclusion in verse 4. Verse 4, therefore, my brethren, now he applies it to us. Therefore, my brethren... You were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to, to God. I mean, Paul's argument here is we died to the law so that we might belong to another. We belong to another in order that we might bear fruit to God. And we can bear fruit now because we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. I mean, the death... Our death to the law is the end of the old age, and our union with Christ is the beginning of the new. Rejoicingly, the new age has come, is what Paul is, is saying here. And, and this new age begins with the power of the Spirit, which is where he'll take us in, in Romans 8. We'll call it three descriptions of a believer's new relationship to the law, this first section that we'll begin today. Paul gives us three descriptions that teach us about a believer's new relationship to the law. Something has changed. He gives us this ruling principle of law. Then there's a required death that's seen in the supporting illustration. And then there's a, a representative marriage, a, a new union described in his conclusion. And then he tells us why that's, that's necessary, why that's important, why God did it that way in verses 4 through, through 6. So a ruling principle, a required death, and a representative marriage. Look at this, look at this first one. First description is the ruling principle of the law. Look, if you would, at verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? I mean, Paul begins here just like he did in chapter 6 with a statement that everyone would agree with. It's common sense. The law only has jurisdiction over a person as long as they are alive. You can't bring a dead person before court. You can't write a ticket to a dead person. It, the law only has jurisdiction over a person as long as they're living. That, that's very plain. That's where Paul starts. But the question that you have to answer is, who is Paul talking to, and what law is he talking about? I mean, what law has jurisdiction? 
And who does this apply to? It's the first question that you have to answer. I mean, is Paul talking about law in general here, or is Paul talking about the Mosaic law? Is he talking about moral law, ceremonial law, the whole thing? What law? And who are the brethren that know the law that Paul's talking about here? Are they Jews only, or are they Gentiles as well? And if they're Gentiles, if Gentiles are included in this brethren who know the law, then how have Gentiles died to the law? I understand how Jews died to the law, the old covenant and the new, but how do Gentiles fit into that picture? And your answers to both of those questions will influence your understanding of the whole chapter. I mean, you look at the, 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 the chapter, I, I think that the, the answer is, is very plain. And Paul's talking to the whole church. He says, brethren, which is both Jewish and Gentile believers, and he's speaking about the Mosaic law which has general application to, to all people, all men. That's even illustrated in this analogy of, of marriage. I mean, the word law has no article here, which leads some to say Paul's not talking about the Mosaic law. When, when, when he says in verse 1, I am speaking to those who know law, you can't see it in the English, in the Greek, it just says I'm speaking to those who know law. It doesn't say the law, it says law which would then lead some people to say that, that this is just law in general. But three words later, he does use the article. He says, the law has jurisdiction over a person. But I think even more definitive of that, I mean, Paul quotes the Ten Commandments in verse 7. How do you know that this is talking about the Mosaic law? Verse 7, I think, settles the argument. Look, if you would, at verse 7 of Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law, what law? The law that said you shall not covet. He quotes the Ten Commandments. He's in the discussion for me. He's talking about the Mosaic law. It's also very clear in verse 22, I think, the end of the chapter. Look at verse 22. Paul says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. You say, well, the law of God is, is in everyone, in the inner man. Yeah, well, but the law that he's talking about in verse 7 is the Ten Commandments. I can remember personally when I got this law wrong. The law of God applying and who it applies to and who it doesn't apply to. As a new convert, I, I was so zealous and in my hatred of sin I took the position that God didn't acknowledge my marriage as an unbeliever. I mean, I concluded that because I didn't understand what marriage was and I, I made a mockery of the vows that I took, that God wasn't in that event and therefore it wasn't a real marriage. The first things that, that I did whenever I was saved is renewed my vows. And I built up this argument with all of these intricacies and frankly, it stemmed from a good thing. I mean, I hated the sin and repudiated the way I lived before Christ, but, but my conclusions were faulty. They were all built on inferences outside of Scripture. I didn't know, so God wasn't in it, so, so how could... And, and I had this, this argument that, that made sense to me. That was until someone who was listening to my argument within childlike simplicity said, so, so if that's true... Does God hold unsafe people accountable for adultery? 
I mean, he's basically saying, if you're saying God didn't acknowledge your marriage as an unbeliever, then, then how does God judge any unbeliever? How does he apply the law to them? Does he not? So if he didn't acknowledge your marriage, then you couldn't say that they're an adulterer. And it just jettisoned my whole argument. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess he does. And the moral of that story is when the Bible talks about the law, it's not applied only to Jewish people. The law of God, in its most general sense, pertains to all of mankind because the law is an expression of God's holiness, who He is, what pleases Him, what's right, what's wrong, and that applies to everyone. That was expressed in particular ways to Israel, but the law existed before the law of Moses. Those were God's chosen people, and God gave them the law for a number of reasons to regulate their relationship in His presence, to reveal the sinfulness of sin. There was a schoolmaster unto Christ. It was to aid their sanctification. In fact, the law permeated every aspect of Jewish life. I mean, the law told them what to do on which days, uh, when to work, when to rest. They, they appealed to the law. They looked to the law. The law was the regulator of, of all of life, how to conduct themselves with others, what to eat when to eat. It even regulated the most intimate aspects of human relationship, when you're clean, when you're unclean. And and so Paul comes along and says the law is no longer the center of your life. That's quite a change for a Jew and a Gentile as well. So whether it's the law of Moses or the law written on my heart, my conscience, and I'm no longer under those, what does that mean? He's going to explain that God has replaced the law with something greater. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of your life. And your relationship to Him regulates all of those things. He's the one that you look to. As to where you used to look to the law or you look to your conscience, now you look to Christ. He's the one who tells you what to think about and what to do each day. Or as Romans 14 says, you keep keep this day unto the Lord. You eat this unto the Lord. Or 1 Corinthians 13, whether you eat or whether you drink, you do all for the glory of God, giving thanks through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that's the center ruling factor of of your life by, by the Spirit. Your relationship to Him regulates your marriage now and relationships to others. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Or 1 Corinthians 7, you remain single if it's possible because the time is near. There's work for the kingdom to be done. But if you do marry, make sure that you're better together for the kingdom than apart. I mean, so Paul's not arguing here that you just throw God aside when he calls for this change toward the the law. He's saying the shadow has passed away. The reality has come. Something greater has come. But there's a clear definitive break and there's a clear definitive change. You don't look to an external code. You don't look to the, to the law to govern the precepts of your life. You, you look to Christ. What the law pointed to has arrived. That's why you just won't run out in, in sin without the law. But this relationship to, to law is what Paul's explaining here. And by using the word brethren, he shows that he, he's applying it to every person. I said he's already made clear in Romans 2 that Gentiles know about the, about the law. Look at Romans 2. For the Gentiles who do not have the law, the law of Moses, do instinctively the things of the law. 
these not having the law are a law unto themselves. As, as the Jews look to the ruling principle of life being the Mosaic covenant, that, that's what they're in covenant with God. And as covenant people, they kept the stipulations of the law. They, they agreed to do that. And the Gentiles that didn't have the law have the law of God written on their heart. And what they're operating against is their conscience, right and wrong. And verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternatively accusing them or else defending them. And Paul says that even those who are not under the Mosaic covenant have, a, have the law of God written on their hearts. You're not accountable to the Mosaic law like the Jews were as Gentiles before you came to Christ, but we're accountable to God's law written on our hearts, and that condemns us. That's Paul's whole point of Romans 2. You're condemned with the law or without the law because you violated the Mosaic law and you violated the law written on your heart, even if you didn't have the Mosaic law. You can't say, I didn't have the Ten Commandments. I don't know. You're, you're in the middle of a jungle somewhere. I didn't have the Bible. You're, you're not without excuse because the law was written on your heart and it condemns you. And Paul will say there's been a definitive break to that. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he begins by speaking to the whole church because he says brethren. We also know the majority of the church is Gentile. So it's unlikely that this chapter is to Jews only. That's vital to recognize. Why am I belaboring this point? Because it's easy to dismiss Romans 7 otherwise. I mean, if Paul's talking to the Jews only about the law of Moses, you go, yeah, yeah, that really doesn't apply to me, or I get it, I'm not under the law of Moses. Next point. And I can prove to you, you already do that with a certain level of inconsistency. Because most Christians will pass over the first two-thirds of Romans 7, like these verses in front of us, and say, oh yeah, that's the law of Moses. But then we get to the end of Romans 7, where Paul talks about the same law, and, and we say, oh yeah, I claim that. I mean, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things, I, I mean, we'll, we'll take that part, but we'll, miss out, we'll just skip over the first part. And Paul's talking about the same law. Paul's talking to brothers here, which applies to Gentiles as well. And this understanding of Romans 7 turns it into something you don't just pass over as a Christian. It's something you want to dive into. It's vital. It's important. I'm going to show you. The ruling principle of life is what's involved here. To live as Christ, that's what Paul says. And he reminds us that we're all aware of this topic of the law reigning and that that same law can end. Look, look if you would, at verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know law. Know the law. Second phrase is what leads some people to say, well, this is talking about the Jews only. Like it narrows down the audience. So they would conclude, you, you either have to say Paul doesn't mean the Mosaic law here, which is highly unlikely, or you conclude that he's speaking to Jewish Christians only, which is also unlikely. I mean, Paul's simply saying here, all have a general awareness of the binding nature of God's law. You're aware of this. It's like he, what he did in, in, in Romans 6, where he, where he says, you Romans that are living in a society with slavery, you understand slavery? You understand that whoever you obey, that's your master. You also understand law, that law has jurisdiction. You understand the jurisdiction of law, that it only applies to people who are living. That's what he's saying. 
All believers know the basic principle that legal claims are binding on a person only during the person's lifetime. Or do you not know, brethren, where I'm speaking to those that know law, what do you know that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? The law only regulates the activities of the living, not the dead. That's Paul's point. And he's setting us up. I mean, everyone Paul's speaking to was acquainted with this basic understanding of legal jurisdiction, which quite frankly is a masterful way to start. I mean, you see what he's doing here? He's declaring a fact that everyone would agree with before he moves into things that they might not agree with. I mean, this is common sense, as we would say, in verse 1. Nobody has a problem with what Paul says in verse 1. They have a problem with what Paul says in verse 2 and 3 and and beyond. He's doing that before he gets to the matters that are more difficult to understand. I mean, Lloyd-Jones said, besides learning theology from the book of Romans, we can also learn how to argue a point well. You may have difficulty with your children if they read Romans and you don't because they'll learn how to argue well. I mean, the Apostle Paul is a man of great logic, and he teaches us through this letter how to make a point and how to make it clear. And he begins by saying, everyone agrees with me on this point. You agree with that? Of course I agree with that. All right, now let me tell you about something else that you may or may not agree on. What do you agree with? You can't regulate a dead man. The law loses its jurisdiction in death. You can't bring a dead person to trial. Everyone understands that. That's common sense. And then he illustrates that in a common area of life, which is also universal, which advances his his argument. The second description is there's a required death demonstrated in this illustration of marriage. Look at you at verse 2 and 3. Verse 2. General principle, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For, notice this is an explanation of what he just stated, for... The married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. He uses another metaphor, just like he did in chapter 6. What's the metaphor in chapter 6? Slavery and masters. He says, you understand that? Slaves obey your masters. In chapter 7, he uses the illustration of marriage. He says, a wife is bound to her husband till death do them part. Contrary to what some of you might think, this is a contrast. It's not a similarity. Paul's not equating slavery with marriage. Paul says we're we're not only slaves of Christ, we are also his precious bride. So after dealing with the audience and the definition, which law, he provides an illustration that applies both to Jews and Gentiles. A general illustration. But before you can understand how Paul uses this illustration related to the the Mosaic law, I need to tell you what he's not talking about here. So you don't stumble. So you don't begin to read this passage and all kinds of other questions come into your mind. Hold the context tight here. This passage is often appealed to as an authority on issues related to marriage because it clearly talks about marriage. In particular, matters of divorce and remarriage. 
The first thing that you need to know, uh, need to take off the table, is that's not what Paul's dealing with here at all. I mean, Paul uses a common example, a general principle about marriage to support his fact. And when you do that, you don't cover all the caveats and all the exceptions. You make a general argument. I mean, it's like we would say, eating too much sugar will make you fat. And our point is not that that's true in every case. I mean, you know the person that does that. You make a general statement. They go, yeah, but what about, I mean, I know somebody who eats all kinds of sugar and they're not fat. I mean, you're saying, I'm just making a general statement, a general axiom. I'm not covering how much sugar or how fat or if you should eat it on Sunday or not. In the same way, Paul is not dealing with all the details of marriage here. He's not giving an explanation that applies to divorce and remarriage. He's simply illustrating this principle of the law that it applies only when someone is living and he's using the binding nature of marriage to illustrate that. Not the exceptions that God has built in because of the, the fall. And not only that, Doug Moo points out that any law that Paul's talking about here, whether you say it's Roman law or Old Testament law, they both acknowledge remarriage. And since his readers know the law, they would have surely recognized that possibility, and that doesn't seem to affect Paul's illustration at, at all. Let me, let me give you a basic lesson in hermeneutics to help make this plain. You should turn back to Matthew 19, if you would. Matthew 19. It's a primary passage that Romans 7 people will appeal to. Let me show you how you, you bring these, these passages together so you don't get confused, misuse Romans 7. Matthew 19. When, when you're developing a, a systematic theology from Scripture on a particular topic, you understand biblical theology, summary, systematic theology, you're systematizing what the Bible teaches on specific topics. So you're going to Scripture and you're taking all of the scriptures that you can find in the Bible that speak about a topic, and you're putting them under a, under a heading. In this case, a systematic theology about marriage, for example. And when you do that, you, you go to the scriptures, everybody goes to the same source code, but, 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 but you, you then have to determine what part of the Bible is prescriptive and what part of the Bible is descriptive. You have to order the passages in this systematic theology to deal with the topic. You have to decide which passages rule on the matter and which passages support it. What's the main passage and what are the, what are the subordinate passages? Because all of the Bible is God's Word, but not every passage has the same purpose. And as you look at Scripture, you must decide which texts are foundational and which passages just fill in the gaps. That exercise then determines your interpretive grid. And if you get that out of order, then your conclusions are going to be faulty. If you get the wrong interpretation, we say one interpretation, many applications. Well, if you get the one interpretation wrong, then your many applications can be wrong. For example, when dealing with things like, like sign gifts or tongues. I mean, if you make a passage in the book of Acts that's simply describing the work of the Spirit in this transitional period, something that God prescribes that all believers do and that you do right now, you make that a ruling passage rather than a, than a description of what took place, then you're going to misinterpret the issue of gifts. 
You're going to fall into error, like Pentecostalism. I mean, that's the crux of Pentecostalism. They, they take passages that are describing what happened, and they say that, they're, that, they, that they prescribe to us what to do, when they don't. It's the same for passages on marriage. If you take a passage that's describing something like this one and make it something that gives stipulations, then your application, like divorce and remarriage, will be off base. And we don't have to guess about what's the ruling passage of marriage because Jesus gives it right here. He makes it plain in Matthew 19. He actually puts hermeneutics on display for us. In Matthew 19, when asked about marriage, Jesus said, what did God say from the beginning? And then he appeals to the ruling passages on divorce and, or on marriage, I should say. Look, look at Matthew 19, verse 3. It says, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I mean, he gets asked about marriage, and in particular divorce, for any reason, and he quotes Genesis one twenty seven. God made the male and female. He made both genders. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, created the genders for this reason, that they might be joined in marriage. But it's very clear that that's the foundational teaching of the Bible on, on marriage. From the beginning, Jesus said, God intended marriage between be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. It's also clear that this applies both to Old and New Testament believers because Jesus is the one who quotes it under the New Covenant. So that's the general teaching of the Bible on, on marriage. Regardless of the covenant or the timing, old or new, that's fixed, that's given, which is exactly why Paul appeals to that in Romans 7. But there are also other secondary passages about marriage, aren't there? that fill in the gaps. They deal with exceptions, which tells us what to do with this general teaching from Genesis when that needs amplified. And the Pharisees know about that as, as well, the other passages. Look at what they say in verse, verse 7. They said to them, Why then did, did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, you know they had evil intentions in their questions, but don't miss they're asking a hermeneutical question. They're asking an ordering question. I mean, the same question that we ask. And they say, but Jesus, that's not the only passage in the Bible. What about the other passages? How do we interpret them in light of this one? Which is ruling and which is supporting? Notice Jesus illustrates how to apply hermeneutics properly. His answer in verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted, didn't command, he permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. He doesn't deny the passage in Deuteronomy 24. He shows how it comes under and amplifies God's foundational teaching in Genesis 1 and 2, how it augments it. He gives the proper use of Deuteronomy. 
He said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. It's a supporting passage. It's not a ruling one. It describes an exception to the rule. But he says that doesn't negate the, the ruling passage. Verse 9, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. He reaffirms Genesis 1. And there are several passages that fall into that category. They're supplementary. Deuteronomy 24, Malachi 2, 1 Corinthians 7. And they're all supporting passages. They don't negate the foundational teaching of one man and one woman for life, but they do provide additional details for a believer living in the world. I mean, Deuteronomy 24 gives us instructions of how to apply the teaching. How does God apply Genesis 1 and 2, the permanence of marriage under the curse? That's a summary of Deuteronomy 24. It shows us how God has regulated the curse through the law in light of Genesis 2. I mean, God's teaching on marriage is still one man and one woman for a lifetime, but because of sin's presence, i.e. the hardness of heart, God regulates that sin with the exception of divorce in order to protect weaker vessels. I believe in that case, women. Had God not done that, women under the Mosaic law would have no recourse whatsoever because they didn't have the right to divorce. And then God's good design of one man and one woman for a lifetime could have been used as evil. You clearly see it's not marriage or its permanent nature that's the problem. It's the hardness of heart. When you put the permanent nature of marriage and the hardness of heart together without any regulation of divorce any exception, then you could be subjected to horrific abuse. And sadly, the same thing can happen unintentionally today. When you don't allow for this regulation that God has clearly provided, a woman typically could be told they're stuck with an evil spouse and that God commands them to stay there and absorb hard-hearted abuse for the gospel with no recourse. If you don't get your hermeneutics right, you can lead people to conclude because of the general teaching of the permanence of marriage, they're bound whenever Scripture has loosed them, or the opposite. You use a secondary passage about divorce that's the exception, and you say, well, that, that's what rules, so anything goes, and you get them out of balance. I mean, of course, 1 Corinthians 7 says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they're willing to remain, you should. Yes, 1 Peter 3 says if you're married to a jerk of a husband, you should remain in that marriage, possibly win him through your chaste behavior. But 1 Corinthians 7 and Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 also say that if a person departs the covenant and acts in perpetual hardness of heart, you are not bound. And if you're not bound, then you're free. Now turn back to, to Romans 7. Because Romans 7 draws from the foundational teaching on marriage and uses its binding nature to illustrate our relationship to the law. And it says you're loosed from it, not by divorce, but but by death. It restates this foundational teaching on marriage from Genesis 1 and 2. But that doesn't negate the other parts of Scripture that speak as well. Look at verse 2. He says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. 
So then, while her husband is living, she's joined to another man. She shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Verse 2 says, the woman, gune, is under the authority of the man. Literally, the hupo oner, like where we get hupotasso, under, you arrange yourself under your husband's. This is, this is you're under the authority of the man in, the, in, the, in marriage. Yet when he dies, literally, the law of the husband no longer applies to the wife. Meaning she's no longer under his authority. Common understanding about the law. Even unbelievers submit to the phrase, until death do us part. Civil law all over the world regulates marriage. Something has to take place for you to be declared free once you're bound to your marriage contract. Now, here's another example, actually, that this is talking about the Mosaic law because Paul's whole point here is about a woman's subordination and the death of the husband which is evidence that Paul's talking about the Mosaic law because only men could initiate divorce in Judaism. Both men and women could divorce under Roman law. But the principle remains the same. You're bound to law, Jew or Gentile, until something changed. And his point here is death. Once that happens, you're free to be bound to another, which in our case is Christ. And you'll have to come back next week to learn about that. Let me leave you with this. A believer must have a funeral before they can have a wedding. That's what Paul's saying here. And as the law was once the ruling principle in your life, whether that's the Mosaic law or whether that's the law written on your heart, now your abiding relationship to Jesus Christ is. And that new relationship is not like appealing to a law code. That new relationship is intimate. It's like a relationship between a husband and a, and a wife. And at the end of one union, there's a beginning of the other, and that has all kinds of ramifications that he'll talk about in Romans 8, like no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Why is there no condemnation? Because you've had a funeral to the law that once condemned you, and you're now married to Christ. You're severed from the law as the ruler over your life, And when it did rule over you, it condemned you. Now that you've been married to Christ, the condemnation has been removed. So for the Christian to want to go back under the law or relate to the law is to bring himself back under bondage and condemnation. That's the seriousness of what Paul's saying here. Or if you want to use Paul's analogy to turn back to the law, actually makes you become a spiritual adulterer. That's what he argues here. Anyone who turns back to the old covenant, to the old relationship, is viewed as an adulterer. So what do I do with the Ten Commandments? What do I do with law in general? Well, that's exactly why Paul wrote this chapter, and we'll get into more of that. The short answer is you don't disregard it. It's not bad, but it's no longer the ruling principle. It's not the center of your life. A Christian doesn't look to a code. A Christian looks to Christ. And Christ is now the center of your life, and you look to Him for what is pleasing to God. And the Spirit is the one who binds you to Christ and energizes your relationship to Him and teaches you all things and guides you. The Pharisees were missing. You know, the Pharisees were never condemned for keeping the law or honoring the law. 
They were condemned for adding to the law. They were condemned for being hypocrites. They were condemned for missing the whole point of the law, which was to show their need. They were condemned for misusing the law, not keeping it. They're condemned for seeking a righteousness through their, of their own, which was a self-righteousness. Not a righteousness that is given by God as a gift by faith and grace. And if you receive a righteousness that's given by God through faith by grace, then you won't be condemned either. And if you do that, you will no longer be under the law of Moses that condemns you. You'll no longer be under the law of your heart. It'll cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, and you will now enter into a relationship. I was talking to a new believer in the last month or so, and in tears, he was talking about praying now as a new believer. Praying as a new believer, he said, before when I prayed, it's like I said words, and now when I pray... I can tell I'm talking to a person. There's actually somebody there. The relationship that you have. There's a lot of people that have religion, and they talk in prayer. And they keep codes. But those who know Jesus Christ have a relationship. They talk to their father, and they do what pleases their father. and He reigns and rules in their hearts. How all that plays out in the rest of the New Testament, we'll see as Paul goes through Romans 7. Let's pray. Father, I know that's a lot of information. We didn't even make it out of the illustration. It's on purpose. It gets easier as we we start to climb. talked about beginning a new climb on the mountain in Romans and how it's hard to get started. But once we get started, we need to drag all this context with us and it becomes plain, makes it clearer. And Lord, your word is something that, that we want to understand. What, what, what better thing to apply, apply effort toward the truth? We spend all types of, of, of hours and all manners of effort to do things that are trivial, that don't matter at all. And yet we spend little time understanding the word. Thank you for giving us that privilege, even stretching us this morning. And I'm thankful that this new relationship is with Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, I want to please you with my life. I don't want to live without you. I'm so thankful that every day, whenever we wake up, live for you and you alone. So I pray for anyone who's not in relationship with you that today would be the day they would repent and believe. Turn to Christ. I pray for any Christian that might be tempted to turn back to codes or rules or otherwise, that they would see that they have something much better. They have an intimate relationship with Jesus that's available. It's in his name we pray. Amen.